You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to your one-stop shop of independent conservative thought here at the conservative conscience at Northern Command Center for Conservative Review. It is Tuesday, July 9th, and what started out as quite a quiet week has really devolved into a much busier week, but it depends who you're watching and what you're looking at as to the type of news you're going to get this week. There's no one big news story. And this is where we kind of come in here because a lot of people are going to focus on funny stuff. Let me just get out of the way two things. When it comes to Secretary of Labor Alex Acosta and Mitch McConnell's Democrat challenger, the very manly, tough Amy McGrath challenging him, I don't care about either. So just to be clear, I'm going to expend my political capital defending the values that I believe in. I'm not going to defend liberals in the Republican Party when the left attacks them, unless there's an important reason behind it. But, I mean, Mitch McConnell, it is truly unfathomable to give over the harm that he has committed to our cause over the last number of years. It truly is. Screwed us on every single point of leverage. So I'm not going to sit and defend him against a Democrat challenger. He needs a Republican challenger in the primary or an independent challenger. So that's number one. Number two, as far as Alex Acosta, the labor secretary who was a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, and you know there's alleged improprieties that he didn't follow the settlement with some of these girls in the Epstein case, uh, you know, informing them about the settlement and different things involved with that, and Democrats are calling on him to resign. This guy is an open borders liberal that's, you know, bringing in all these people on these visa programs. He's, by the way, behind some of the blocking of certain rules that would tighten, you know, some of these visa programs. I'm not going to sit and defend the guy. I'm sorry. I'm just like, I'm not going to focus on that. So that's with that. The other the other point I just want to make, speaking of an independent challenge to McConnell that we need, um, just want to you know give tribute to, to Ross Perot. Um, you know, he wasn't a complete constitutional conservative, more of just a straight populist. Didn't agree with him on everything. But really a, a great man um, in many, many respects. And a very fond memories as a youngster of the 1992 election, my father voted for him. He used to go to those United We We Stand meetings. And by and large, you know, there are really good people who actually voted for him. Um, my, my father, you know, he was sick of the Bushes, how liberal they were, never wanted him to succeed, uh, succeed Reagan at all. And, you know, raised taxes, got us involved in Somalia. I know my father was very upset about that at the time. And, 
you know, so when I was a kid in the mock elections in school, I actually voted for Ross Perot. And I know my father did. I'm not sure if my mother did in the end. But in many respects, he really spawned whatever elements we have in this country that still want something more independent. Some went into the Ron Paul movement. Some went into Tea Party. But it really, by and large, started with Ross Perot. And he demonstrated that if you can get some money and traction, you could really do very well. I mean, he got... 19% that first time around. And I think if we had someone, you know, with a little better personality, better plan, take it to the next level, it could work. And he really warned about the debt. And boy, was he right about that. So, um, great American died at 89. And, uh, you know, truly, truly someone that I think we should just cherish and, and, and look to see how to build on them. Again, not that I agree with everything. I'm more of a conservative than a straight populist, but I think he had a lot of the right ideas and, and right strategies. And uh, had he not been so erratic in dropping out of that race, he could have possibly won that and completely changed the arc of history. Anyway, yesterday we talked a lot about immigration and the border. There's a lot more going on in interior enforcement. All of these cases with criminal aliens committing all sorts of crimes. There's more. There's two people who were killed in a DUI in Illinois. I hope to get to that, if not later today, than tomorrow. Um, all I could tell you is every day I find stories of people with unbelievable histories driving violations that should have been brought out of the country and they go on to kill someone in a DUI or another form of homicide. All of it goes unreported in the local media. The immigration status gets ignored and I'm left on my own to try to vet this out. So anyone who can help me with that, I'd really appreciate it. You know, if you can... When you send me these emails, try to get as much information as you can. Try to look up the criminal history. Depending on the state, sometimes it's harder than others to get that information. The mugshot, the booking um, information, that will make it easier for me to kind of make the case of urgency to the ICE press office to, to get information on that. But obviously today, if you are watching my Twitter account, you know I'm going to talk about the courts. The courts are literally God. There is nothing a federal judge can't do under our prevailing system. And I don't know how many times to say this, but nothing matters until this is dealt with. So, you know, I started out today, I wrote a very long article, and I apologize for it being so long, but I'll review it on today's show. You know, it's like 2,300 words, and you know, normally you never want to write something that long. But I wanted to give over to people in writing just... What exactly is the role of the courts in standing? What's not the role of the courts? How does it apply to the Obamacare case? Because today you have in the Fifth Circuit, our side is trying to use the courts to go after Obamacare. And then right when I finished publishing that article, we have the Second Circuit come out and say that Trump can't block people from directly accessing his private Twitter account. 
So there's a lot to unpack here. Now, obviously, you have issues that on the one one side of the spectrum are totally abstract, political, personal, policy questions. They're not related to any individual with a tangible burden or grievance that has a right to go to the court, that a court has a right to get involved, to get Article Three standing, to rule on the case. You have the other end of the spectrum, things that are absolutely civil and criminal cases dealing with individuals that are emphatically the province of the court. And then you have cases in the middle that are very political, but there's an angle of it that directly does affect people in a very direct, tangible way. And they have an avenue to get to go to the courts, and that is legitimate. But then what the court's ruling on that case is and how it has bearings on the policy broadly is something we need to discuss. So, look, you know, at one end of the spectrum, like we've said before, I've said many times, is the case where the Trump administration violated statute and the Constitution, Second Amendment, takings clause, ex post facto, and retroactively made felons out of anyone who doesn't destroy their lawfully purchased bump stocks. So, like I said before, even though that's also a very big political dispute in general, but individuals clearly have the right to go to a court and say, look, I believe this is unfair, I believe Constitution and statute's on my side, and the court has the right to look at statute and the Constitution to render of an opinion for that plaintiff and give, give that plaintiff relief. At the other end of the spectrum, you have these abstract cases of someone doesn't like an abstract policy. I don't like you asking the citizenship question on the census. Well, how are you harmed? You don't like the policy, I understand that, but that's not a case for a court to resolve. And somewhere in the middle, you have the Obamacare case. So... I want to first give over to you, and this is a little bit of a review, but we have a lot of new listeners, and because today is oral arguments in the Obamacare case, and a lot of people are asking me, hey, Daniel, you know, you keep talking about how the courts are sacking power, and they're deciding the most important societal, cultural, now even Twitter catfight questions. So, hey, I mean, are you down for the courts ruling on the most fundamental question on health care? You know, Daniel, aren't you a hypocrite? So I, I think it's very important to get into the weeds here. What exactly is the role of the courts? What's not the role of the courts? What's legitimate? What's not? And then we'll get to this Twitter case. Now, generally speaking, I just want to give you the overview before we get into the specifics. My view of the Fifth Circuit, remember, Judge Reed O'Connor, the district judge in the Northern District of Texas, didn't issue an injunction on Obamacare, but he gave a summary judgment that he believes Obamacare is unconstitutional and the entirety of it should fall away based on what the Supreme Court has previously said. My view in general is that I disagree with this as much as I hate Obamacare. I don't believe they should get standing in this case 
and I don't believe the rest of the law should fall away. Indeed, it doesn't if you understand what the judicial power is. But at the same time, so I don't believe that, and I would like to cut a deal and get all this out of the courts. But at the same time, if you're going to tell me that citizens could sue the president for blocking them on their Twitter account, and again, the president's not blocking you putting a gag on your speech. Right? You could say whatever you want, and indeed, you could even view his account. You just can't view it directly logged into your account. But if you're going to tell me such a person gets standing and even a favorable ruling from a judge, as they did today, then you sure as heck better believe that we could sue Obamacare. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. The left should should stew in the judicial supremacy, judicial tyranny game that they created. They should stew it in Obamacare. Now, ultimately, I don't think the Supreme Court is going to rule that way, even if the Fifth Circuit does. Ultimately. Um, but I will say that I don't blame the plaintiffs and Attorney General Patrick in Texas for taking this case because they are following the rules of the road of the legal profession. Meaning, read O'Connor's opinion, and assuming the Fifth Circuit sides with that, um... You know, it's, I think it's stupid, but it's well within the precedent of what the courts have been doing and what they literally said in the Obamacare case. All Reed O'Connor did was the following. So if you, if you all remember, in, um, NFIB v. Sebelius, the original Obamacare case, you had five justices of the court that said the following. It's unconstitutional to force someone to purchase a private product, to engage in commerce, to purchase health insurance. And because that's an inextricably linked to the other provisions of the law and they didn't have a severability clause in the statute, Therefore, the rest of the law falls away. Okay, that that everyone agreed among those five justices that that is the case. Okay, no one disagreed with that point. Okay, very, very, very important here. Nobody disagreed with that point, except. So now you're going to say, "Well, why is Obamacare still still there?" Well, you had the fifth. Justice, uh, you know, Chief Justice uh, Roberts swing the other way to say that no, this is a tax. It's not a regulation, which would be an unconstitutional utilization of the Commerce Clause. You're right, Congress doesn't have the power to force you to engage in commerce, but they're just taxing you. Right? It was absurd to call it that, but that was. That was the ruling from Chief Justice Roberts. So therefore, it's not a problem. But really, all nine justices agreed that if the individual mandate would go down, the rest of the law would go down. Now, the four liberals felt it's not a violation of the Commerce Clause either because either government could do anything to you. 
Robert said they can't, but this could be justified as a tax. And Obamacare, you know, continued to, to stand. What Ken Paxton in Texas came in with the lawsuit is that pursuant to the new tax law, they zeroed out the penalty of the individual mandate for not purchasing insurance. So they wanted to say, wait a minute. Now that the penalty is zero, you can't say it's a tax. It's only a regulation. It's saying you must purchase insurance. It can't be justified as a tax because there is no tax anymore. That was zeroed out. So therefore, it falls back again on being an unconstitutional provision. And therefore, the individual mandate should be struck down. And once that's struck down, the severability doctrine dictates that the whole law should be struck down. That is what these guys were saying. And that's indeed how Reed O'Connor ruled. Right, again, he didn't stop anything, didn't stop Medicaid and the subsidies. That would be the equivalent of what Judge Dana Sabra did on immigration. Right, he didn't do that. Now, obviously, let's plug this into our views on the courts. I agree that even if something's a big political issue, but if government does something unconstitutional that directly affects you, you have the right not to strike down the laws. There's no veto. Courts do not strike down laws, but to get standing, to get relief. Now, my argument is what Texas is doing under what I believe are the authentic Article 3 standing guidelines is BS because it's circular logic. You're right. It's no longer a tax. But if it's no longer a tax and there's no penalty, where's your standing? Well, I don't like the law. It's unconstitutional. You're right. You're right. I, I totally agree it's unconstitutional to force someone to purchase health insurance. And indeed, if there would be a penalty, that is a gestatiable case that I should get relief. But you have relief. There, there's nothing to redress. You don't have to pay anything. You're not going to get thrown in jail. You don't have to pay anything. What's your problem? See what I'm saying? What is your problem? The fact that there's no penalty means there's no standing. You can't just cleverly, cutely get standing to strike down a law because Congress doesn't strike down laws. All they do is gives is is grant um, relief. This is really where this distinction is brought out. You know, when I always talk about the fact that courts don't veto, they just grant relief. This is a, a tangible difference because in this case, there is no it, – it's a, it's a law without any stinger. It's like a bee without a stinger. There's, there's nothing there. They can't do anything to you. I – I don't think I – how dare government force me to buy insurance? You're right. It's unconstitutional, so don't don't purchase it. Well, what do you want from the courts? Just don't purchase it. Nothing will happen to you. That is my view. But nonetheless, Reed O'Connor wrote a very compelling case that our existing precedents on standing, which are stupid and absurd, give them that. So look, I don't blame conservatives for using that. I would rather go the other way and eliminate all this stuff, fix the rules of standing. But under the rules of standing, you know, they say, look, you know, if you ever apply for a government job, officially you're in violation of it and it could hurt you and your resume. I think that's BS. It's not tangible enough, but nonetheless, it's there. 
What about, so the individual mandate's unconstitutional. Now, shouldn't the rest of the law now fall apart? Now, look, this is another example of where understanding the role of the courts comes in. If courts had a judicial veto, if they struck things down, so it makes sense because everyone's like everyone's all perturbed, and this is where the severability doctrine in the courts came up. Well, you can't have a line item veto. It's like a president doesn't have a line item veto. So if you veto something, the whole thing falls apart. You're right. But the same way you're perturbed about a court having a line item veto, it doesn't have any veto. If a court were a veto, you'd be right. But all a court says is, look, this provision forcing people to, to purchase health insurance, I'm not going to enforce. Now, what Congress wants to do with that is their business. If they want to say, look, I want to write an entirely new law or leave it as is, but it doesn't automatically strike down the Medicaid and subsidies as much as I would like it to, which I believe those things are unconstitutional too. But again, that's not what the litigants are, are asserting here. So that's my view on the Obamacare case. I think this severability doctrine is garbage. But nonetheless, that is the precedent in the courts. And all the judges, including the conservatives, said that, went along with that in the Obamacare case. So I can't blame Reed O'Connor for doing it And if the Fifth Circuit agrees. But it's stupid precedent. And indeed, last year in 2018, in... Murphy, this was a case of the sports betting case, New Jersey case. Thomas wrote a concurrence where he launched into that he doesn't, he reveals, and we always knew this, that he doesn't feel comfortable with the entire concept of severability. Because if you think about it, that automatically elevates the courts to a vetoing body rather than granting relief. So, you know, they ruled that this uh, law pro- prohibiting states from, uh, you know, the sports betting, this is the um, Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, PASPA. Um, so, the court in that case ruled in the Murphy case because PASPA is at least partially unconstitutional. Our precedents instruct us to determine which portions of the statute we must sever and excise. And Thomas states the obvious. Those precedents appear to be in tension with traditional limits on judicial authority. Early American courts did not have a severability doctrine. They recognized that the judicial power is fundamentally the power to render judgments in individual cases. Judicial review was a byproduct of that process. Right? If a plaintiff relies on a statute, but a defendant argues that the statute conflicts with the Constitution, then the courts must resolve that dispute, and if they agree with the defendant, follow the higher law of the Constitution. Right? But do they strike down statutes? No. Thomas says invalidating a statute is not a remedy like an injunction, a declaration, or damages. (laughs) 
The power to review and annul acts of Congress is little more than the negative power to disregard an unconstitutional enactment and that the courts enjoin not the execution of the statute but the acts of the official. Courts do not have the power to excise or strike down statutes. This is a very important line from um, Thomas. Because courts cannot take a blue pencil to statutes, the severability doctrine must be an exercise in statutory interpretation. In other words, the severability doctrine has courts decide how a statute operates once they conclude that part of it cannot be constitutionally enforced. But even under this view, the severability doctrine is still dubious for at least two reasons. And he goes on to say that it requires judges to determine what Congress would have intended had it known that part of the statute was unconstitutional. But obviously, you know, he goes on to say that that's nonsense. Without any actual evidence of intent, the severability doctrine invites Congress to rely on their own views about what the best statute would be. And obviously, as he says, intentions do not count unless they are enshrined in a text that makes it through the constitutional process of bicameralism and presentment. Because we have a law of government, a government of laws, not of men, we are governed by legislated texts, not legislators' intentions. Hypothetically, hypothetical intent is exactly what the severability doctrine turns on. And then he says, second, the severability doctrine often requires courts to weigh in on statutory provisions that no party has standing to challenge. See, it's not a domino game. Oh, I have standing on this, but because that thing was in the rest of the law and that falls, the rest falls. It, it doesn't work like that. Bringing courts dangerously close to issuing advisory opinions. If one provision of a statute is deemed unconstitutional, this is Thomas I'm reading from, the severability doctrine places every other provision at risk of being declared non-severable and thus inoperative. Our precedents do not ask whether the plaintiff has standing to challenge those provisions. True, the plaintiff had standing to challenge the unconstitutional part of the statute, but the severability doctrine comes into play only after the court has resolved that issue. And he just sums up, in some our modern severability precedents are in tension with the long-standing limits on the judicial power. And though no party in this case has asked us to reconsider these precedents, at some point it behooves us to do so. So again, in Obamacare, remember, even Thomas, you know, he signed on to it. But I'm glad that Thomas in his old age, contrary to every other judge who gets worse, he gets better. And he's like, wait a minute. Like, and it's very tough because, you know, there's so much stuff built on this. So often they go along with it, but it's all wrong. You can't say this is struck down, so that's struck down. First of all, even A isn't struck down, much less B. It's just A, if the guy gets standing and there's a direct harm from A that violates statute of the Constitution, I could give him judgment. That's it. It's not struck down. But again, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If you're going to tell me that courts could grant standing to foreign nationals to invade, grant standing to people who in the abstract don't like photo ID laws, even though they were never denied specifically any right to vote, that they could have standing to sue for access to Trump's Twitter account 
or Jim Acosta to sue for a press badge, then you better believe that, you know, and, and it's literally happening um, in about an hour, the oral arguments of the Fifth Circuit, that we can say, look, if you're going to take over healthcare at a federal level and force us um, to go ahead and purchase insurance, even if there's no penalty, but, you know, that our precedent says that I get standing and our precedent says that there's a severability doctrine that once that's deemed unconstitutional, everything else is. I mean, on constitutional grounds, nobody could argue that the individual mandate is constitutional. I mean, nobody could say that. You don't need a court to tell you that. Because if a court could force you to engage in commerce, if, if a government, I mean, there's literally nothing the federal government can't do. So again, to be very consistent, I don't believe in any of this, but if we're all going to say this, there's nothing radically new about what Reed O'Connor did and what the Fifth Circuit might do because it's all within our precedents governing standing and severability. I disagree on both of those. Again, in this case, when there was a penalty, I believe I believed in NFIB v. Sebelius. You could say, I don't want to pay the penalty. But obviously, in this case, you don't have to pay it, and that's literally the foundation of the entire lawsuit. But now let's go on to the Twitter case. And again, I just want to, you could read my article just to go back to this first. I just explain what distinguishes judicial power from judicial tyranny. And I explain what judicial review is. John Marshall wrote that he, he wrote very important words. If the judge believes that, quote, the unchangeable Constitution then in, demands such a result that in some cases the Constitution must be looked into by judges in order to resolve a specific case. What does the some cases mean? It means what Alexander, Alexander Hamilton said about, oh, I don't know, 16 or so years earlier in Federalist 78. The some cases were when the policies or laws being challenged in court were contrary to the manifest tenor of the Constitution, such as bills of attainder, no ex post facto, as post facto laws, and the like. James Erdell, one of the founding fathers of Article 3, an original Supreme Court justice during George Washington's administration, explained that judges will only do that when they're unconstitutional beyond dispute and only in a, quote, clear and urgent case. And indeed, he himself did so in Calder v. Bull. This was a few years before Marbury because that was an ex post facto law. You retroactively criminalize something. That is the proper role of the courts. But again, even then, the court's not striking it down. It's just for the purpose of their branch of government, the judiciary, they say, look, we are not going to enforce it in a criminal sense against an individual. Even then, the law is not ripped out. And and depending on the mechanics of what the law does, sometimes other branches, if they want, could get involved and still treat it as the law in certain cases. It's a very, very simple concept here. 
Very simple concept. And again, I would argue even when there is a legitimate case or controversy with standing and constitutional interpretation, the other branches of government are still independent branches of government, and they still are free to push back if they disagree. But I'm trying to define what is within the province of the court to rule on in the first place. So here we come to this Twilight Twitter case. So now the courts are in charge of Twitter catfights. Not only do they resolve every abstract political societal dispute, they now resolve Twitter catfights. They're codifying Twitter as a public forum, but of course not for Twitter itself, banning conservatives, but only for the president. For reasons they can't really articulate in a consistent way, but everyone has a right. I have a right to the president's Twitter account to directly be able to view it. If I had to find a textbook case for the absurdity of what has gone on with the judiciary, how we've moved away from Article Three standing, this is it. So the so you know you had last year Naomi Buchwald, and again you see how um, pervasive this is. It, there's so it's not like one judge; it's a lot of them. This is the district judge, Southern District of New York, last year ruled that his I have a First Amendment right to his account. Think about how they flipped First Amendment on its head. It's part of my First Amendment account. If I have a medium of using something, whatever form of communication, whoever runs it, they give me an account. I could choose to use it however I want. I could say whatever I want, and I could block whoever I want because blocking doesn't mean blocking. It's, it's a misnomer. You're not doing anything to the person. It's more like you're shielding your account. But you're not putting a gag on them. They could do whatever they want. But yet in this country, we now have courts telling us that the First Amendment means I have the right to your free speech, but you don't have the right to your own. So you don't have the right to merely remain in locomotion with your own private property and not be forced to engage in involuntary servitude for a gay wedding. But I have the right to force you to service me. Or I have the right to access your Twitter account directly. So the, the, this went to the Second Circuit, which is the appeals court with jurisdiction. And they sided with Buckwald. Bichwald. And they first explain how Twitter works. And I'm telling you, this opinion, if you would have sent it to me even a couple years ago, I would have had to authenticate the document because I would have thought it was a total parody document. But I guess it's real. I guess it's real. And they conclude that the First Amendment does not permit a public official who utilizes a social media account for all manner of official purposes to exclude persons from an otherwise open online dialogue because they express views with which the official disagrees. There's a couple of people that tw- that that Trump just blocked, and uh, they say you're not allowed to do that. 
and and they talk about all sorts of comment threads. I mean, when you're getting into that, by definition, you should realize you're in the wrong business. So they first start off, start off by explaining why it's a public account. So here, here's the deal. A lot of elected officials, they'll have a private account because they just simply started out with it or a campaign account, and then they'll, they'll win election, whether it's Congress or Senate, whatever, and then they'll have a Senate one. But now, to be very clear, there's no official account in a, in a legal term of art sense. It's colloquially, we kind of use that term, but there's no legal distinction. Even Twitter, in their private affairs, they don't have like different types of accounts. It just normally, you know, look, if you're an elected official, you're always going to be a little bit more restrained than when you're private. So you don't want it mixed in. And your focus and tone might be a little different. But again, that's not, there's no laws governing that. There's no legal distinction. There's no such thing as an official government account. Congress has never codified that into the disclosure and FOIA statutes, like as if it's like, Subject to official business. It's not official in that sense. It's official as a personal preference. But the irony is, the account that we're talking about is the at real Donald Trump, which was always his private one. It was always his private account. The president has had it since 2009. So he does have an official at POTUS one, which again is not even official. It's not official. I would argue he could do it for, he could ban anyone on that thing too until the government itself passes a law maybe codifying that. It's a courtesy that Twitter might offer him, giving him the Twitter handle at POTUS. But again, it's not even that handle we're talking about. Mainly the one he uses is, is his what you would call personal one, at real Donald Trump. So they spend the first part of the opinion, and by the way, this is Judge Parker. This is very important to realize, two out of the three judges are George W. Bush appointees. So again, all the time when you see people are like, oh, Trump is at the cusp of flipping this circuit, they're counting all of Bush's appointees, and most of them are horrible. And there's another example. Two out of the three, Parker and Hall including Parker was the guy who wrote the opinion, are George W. Bush appointees. This guy, Droney, is an Obama appointee. Two of them were senior judges, including Parker. But, you know, they're part-time, but they still rule on, on let's say, 50% caseload. Some are 25%, some are 75%. I don't know what these guys are, but they're senior judges. And anyway, they go through all sorts of reasons why, but this is really like an official account. And he does everything on that account. He, it's so important. And they make all these political arguments. I mean, this is what we're seeing in the era of Trump, where the courts are now making political arguments. 50 million followers. Okay. I mean, like, that's not a legal distinction. It's everything. And basically, they come to the conclusion that you even look at his avatar, and his avatar shows him engaging in presidential activities. It's even registered with the byline, Donald J. Trump, 45th president of the United States of America. Again, there's no law that that codifies that. They're like passing a statute. Like, 
Theoretically, Congress might one day do that, but they haven't. And and he basically says it's it's engaging in the performance of his official duties. I mean, the most absurd thing you could ever imagine. Literally like, you know, documents being signed in the Oval Office that would be subject to FOIA, somehow this like official duty. Now, obviously, anyone with a half a brain, and we, we, we shouldn't even have to discuss this, everyone understands that what's going on here, it's not official, it's not... He's not conducting his duties as president. He's conducting his duties the way he conducts them. Twitter is one of his favorite venues of announcing and commentating on what he did. It's that simple. So, the deal here is, it doesn't matter that he, you know, how he uses it. They're like, oh, he sometimes announces cabinet picks. So what? But the official transmission to Congress wasn't through Twitter. Okay, the stuff that's like foyable, that's p- subject to public disclosure laws, are what he actually does. There's nothing, there is no official work. But it's so vital and important. Uh, so what? It's kind of like the scatter shot, you know, when the courts throw a bunch of political arguments to try to generate. There's something I don't know. There's something about him. This makes it public property. Uh, no, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. He's not conducting anything. He's communicating with people. If the president would choose to mail out letters to some people and not mail them out to others, kind of as like his own personal summary of things he cares about in his commentary and who he hates, <laughs> he's able to do that. Oh, but you can't delink that from his public persona as a president. It's not true. The president still has his own First Amendment rights. Especially where no statute got involved. And then they try to explain, I mean, it's unbelievable how they have standing. Literally, this reads like a parody. The individual plaintiffs further contend that their inability to view, retweet, and reply to the president's tweets limits their ability to participate with other members of the public in the comment threads that appear below the president's tweets. The parties agree that without the context of the president's original tweets, which the individual plaintiffs are unable to view when logged into their accounts, it is more difficult to follow the conversations occurring in the comments thread. In addition, the parties have stipulated that as a consequence of their having been blocked, the individual plaintiffs are burdened in their ability to view or directly reply to the president's tweets and to participate in the comments thread, comment threads associated with the president's tweets. While various workarounds exist that would allow each of the individual plaintiffs to engage with the account, they contend that each is burdensome. For example, blocked users who wish to participate in the comment thread of a blocking user's tweet could log out of their accounts, identify a first-level reply to which they would like to respond, log back into their accounts, locate the first-level reply on the author's timeline, and then post the message and reply. The blocked user's messages would appear in the comment thread of the blocking user's tweet, although the blocking user would be unable to see it. 
Blocked users could also create a new Twitter account. Alternatively, blocked users could log out of their accounts, navigate to the blocking user's timeline, take a screenshot of the blocking user's tweet, then log into it. And then they go on to explain that this is just, it's too much. It's just too much. I mean, I'm not, I'm not making this up here, folks. And they, they say the president created a public forum with his account. Now, one of the amazing tricks that the courts do is, I love when they do this, they go extremely broad and revolutionary. They create a new constitutional right that's beyond imaginable. So once you do that, you have the, uh, the obligation to then explain the parameters and the logical conclusion of your absurdity because it begs a lot of questions. But then they get all narrow on you and they get all case and controversy. It's the worst mix. And then, then they're like, of course, not every social media account operated by a public official is a government account. Whether First Amendment concerns are triggered when a public official uses an account in ways that differ from those presented in this appeal will in most instances be a fact-specific inquiry. The outcome of that inquiry will be informed by how the official describes and uses the account to whom features of the account are made available and how others, including government officials and agencies, regard and treat that account. Because obviously the absurd outcome here is, wait a minute, if you're telling me even the president's so-called private account is public, so then certainly all these congressmen that ban it forever banning people, blocking people, from their official, again, it's not official, but the way they use it, um, Twitter account, that should all be, I mean, they immediately should not be able to block people. That, see, that's what's so political. If you Suddenly they're like, no, no, we're just ruling on a case before us. I mean, other cases, we got to look at the facts. But no, you're not. You're proclaiming a new constitutional right. So then, like, you can't, so they want to make it all about, it's all political. It's all about Trump. There's no technical legalities here. It's all political. Because if you did, you would have to make a proclamation, say, generally speaking, if you have an official account that you use for official duties, that even if you're a congressman, what about an executive branch official? Do you have to be Senate confirmation level? What about a career bureaucrat? What about um, executive staff that's below confirmation level? What about GS-15? What about law clerks? What about Mr. Parker's, Judge Parker's law clerks? Are they allowed to block? And then there's the obvious question that I'm sure you're, you're all asking. Wait a minute. If one person's private account is a public forum enough that he can't personally block people, then how the hell is the entire Twitter not a public forum that you know, by a factor of a million, Twitter shouldn't be able to indiscriminately ban people. Now, I know a lot of conservatives are going to jump on that because they want to go after Twitter. I don't think we need to go in that direction. I'd rather we go in the other direction, that the courts stay the hell out of all of it. And I think you're seeing that. I know some, some people really want to you know, start regulating Twitter. And I'm fine with taking away certain protections. But to really start regulating, this is Exhibit A, on if you want the courts to get involved, the chilling effects that this is going to have on freedom of speech. This sounds very funny, but it's not. When a government could get – courts could get involved in that, they could easily start policing 
you know, what's to stop them from saying Trump has to follow people? It's not fair that you choose only to follow these people. <clears throat> but the court made it sure to say, nor do we consider or decide whether private social media companies are bound by the First Amendment when policing their platforms. But you have an obligation to do so. I made this case in Chapter 3 of my book on the gay marriage case. There is nothing more fixed than marriage between a man and a woman. But if you're going to come in as a court and say it's no longer a man and a woman, so you have an obligation to say what it is. You can't just have a drive-by and say, oh, you know, like Kennedy said, well, at least if it's, you know, a, a gay relationship. Well, what about four or five or six? What about bestiality? What about polygamy? In other words, you can't you have an obligation to 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 say to say your standard. If you're erasing an obvious standard and anyway you're giving you're you're serving as a king and not being an adjudicative body of case and controversy, you have the obligation to do it. But the thing is, if you would, you would look absurd. Because then if you take that opinion to its logical conclusion, you look like a fool. And that would happen here. And then ironically. The judge ends off his uh, opinion in this patronizing line. I mean, literally, it just reads like a political screed. The irony in all of this is that we write at a time in the history of this nation when the conduct of our government and its officials is subject to wide open, robust debate. The debate encompasses an extraordinarily broad range of ideas and viewpoints and generates a level of passion and intensity the likes of which have rarely been seen. This debate in uncomfortable and as uncomfortable and as unpleasant as it frequently may be is nonetheless a good thing. In resolving this appeal, we remind the litigants and the public that if the First Amendment means anything, it means that the best response to disfavored speech on matters of public concern is more speech, not less. Wait, so you're now mandating more speech? So you're mandating... I mean, where does this end? I mean, folks, you're going to hear a lot of garbage and... Gosh, we're going to have this stupid Mueller hearing soon. And this is really what matters. Do you understand what they're doing with the First Amendment? It sounds extremely petty and insane, but it's also very consequential. What they're doing with the role of the courts and what they're doing with... um. You know, just the basic meaning of the First Amendment. This is scary. To start mandating all sorts of things. And again, they'll start with public officials, but they'll go to private officials. They'll say, you're homophobic. You're Islamophobic for banning this person. For, for um. Because again, what do you, what do you think forcing someone to service a gay wedding with your private property is? They have flipped sovereignty upside down. They flipped private property rights, First Amendment upside down. They flipped the role of the courts upside down. And we allow this to go on. No one challenges it. There's literally nothing, 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 nothing a district judge could do that will not be regarded as out of bounds. Look, you're making them log out of their account. (laughs) 
How in the world could we even take that seriously? But again, this happens every single day. Every single day. You know, what's happening in this country is just, it's beyond belief. You know, I just saw, speaking of Twitter, (laughs) I just saw a great Twitter thread um, that Chip just sent around from uh, Jesse Kelly. I'm just quoting here. For too long, the people on the right, myself included, have called the American left socialist or some brand of that. But it's dawned on me that there's something else entirely, and I can't quite put my finger on it. Even the commies love their country. This is something worse. The commies didn't want to flood their countries with illegal aliens and deport nobody. The commies could never have allowed government schools to encourage young children to question their gender or allowed a young boy to dress and drag and dance for men. I can't stop thinking about the Gallup poll showing only 22% of Democrats are proud of their country. Something has really shifted. It's not un-American. It is anti-American. That's not communism. That's an insurgency. And I, I think I think it's a very trenchant thought, and we've come to that here. And that's what we're really getting to, to stolen sovereignty. And the more we allow this Overton window to get pushed and pushed without any pushback, and we get distracted on stupidity, the more we have problems. The courts are just engaging in anarchy. It's not even socialism. It's just worse than that. Meaning everything Jesse Kelly is saying about the liberal media, liberal activists, liberal elected officials, it's even worse when it's the courts that are life-tenured and regarded as there's no, 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 nothing from them except to – no redress except to amend the Constitution. So um, – There, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss of words. So Trump's literally not going to block anyone? What, so this now goes to the Supreme Court? I mean, but you see, they gave up on the Acosta thing. Keep in mind, even if you don't care about the specific cases, the principles they're laying down are far-reaching. Like the Jim Acosta case, when you say that there is now a right to a press badge... Do you understand how you could take that to so many other more consequential policies? And that was a Trump judge that did that, and we allowed it to stand. They didn't even force the Supreme force it to the Supreme Court. I wonder what's going to happen here. So, yeah, I don't know. But that's where we are in this country. We don't have a country worth defending from illegals if we have this judicial North Korea. I mean, there's literally nothing a judge can't do. They have more power than anything. It's it's literally Kim Jong-un. You have a thousand little Kim Uns running running around in this country, and any one of them could just say whatever he wants and have that regarded as the law. Whatever whatever he wants. I, I stopped trying to think of analogies or absurdities or metaphors because we've already surpassed in reality what I could conjure up with exaggeration and absurdity. 
Again, the examples I use in my book, my book is from 2016. Are really outdated. Totally outdated. They seem like nothing. You would think by now people would wake up. And even with the census thing, they're not saying what I'm saying, that the courts have no legitimate power over this. They're saying we're going to find some way. I don't have high hopes for that. I think it's just another thing to filibuster conservative opposition and to buy them more time to cave on us. All sorts of crazy stuff. We don't have anyone on message. Just drives me nuts. But anyway, I hope this helped this presentation of what is Article 3 standing, what is the role of the courts and what's not, and the danger of it. There's a lot of other stuff I want to go over. Maybe tomorrow we'll get into just the criminal alien stuff. There's so much of that going on. And it just it kills me that it goes unreported. Kills me. By the way, one thing I just want to follow up on yesterday. We mentioned the Louisville um, Courier, Courier um, where is this? Courier Journal? Is that what it was? Yeah. Um, I wasn't sure if this is Louisville or Lexington paper, but it was a Louisville paper. They said that Congressman Massey, Thomas Massey, there might be someone trying to run against him being recruited by Elise Stefanik, the woman in charge of recruiting women. She has like a 10 Liberty score or something. She's like literally a Democrat. And I got the scoop on that. There's no evidence that she's directly doing that this time, although you never know if there's dark money behind it indirectly. But Stefanik absolutely did try to recruit. Um, absolutely did recruit Kim Moser to run against him last cycle. So in some ways, the article is a bit old news, but now Moser, at least on her own, is thinking about doing it again. So it is foundationally true. So there you have it. There's a rhino movement to primary conservatives, even get Trump on board. But there's no movement to primary these clowns and um, and get Trump to support our guys. Broken movement. I don't need to tell you that. When you guys listen to this show and then you hear the contrast of most others, you'll see how broken and off message they are. And I only have so many hours and minutes in the day as one person to cover so many issues and read these court cases and read the policies and read the laws and do this. I wish I could do so much more. I have so much more on my mind. But got to get back to work. But anyway, let me know. Let me know if there's some issues that you feel aren't being addressed that you want us to delve into. And again, as always, you could really help me out. Um, Now look, if you just see a Hispanic-sounding name of a guy that did it, you know, committed a crime, DUI, manslaughter, or homicide, whatever it is, try to find out a little bit more. Um, but it's tough because often you just you just can't find out. Sometimes they're anchor babies, so they're regarded as citizens. So ICE won't have a detainer on them. Sometimes they could be legal immigrants. They could be American-born for generations. I mean, you never know. But there's a heck of a lot of this that's not being pointed out. 
You know, today they're all over this. Oh, an eleventh person this year died in ICE custody. Do you know that that's like one one hundredth of the mortality rate of state and federal prisons, and yet they are dealing with people that are coming into their facilities under the worst circumstances and the worst health from the worst, most unsanitary parts of the world. But yet every single illegal who dies of natural causes, we know about. But we never know the names of the Americans killed every day by illegal aliens, almost always, who are on their second, third, fourth, or fifth crime that could have easily been deported. There should be an effort that every single person who is arrested in this country, as Sheriff Chuck Jenkins of Frederick, Maryland, told us two weeks ago, everyone should be like him. That you immediately ask everyone, as you would in this situation, as we always used to, what country are you a citizen of? Period. And anyone we find that's not a citizen of, of America, immediately the feds should be notified. And that should be the last crime they commit in this country. That is a 90-10 issue. Yet we don't have much of a voice. Actually, Tom Tillis, it's funny, Tom Tillis just announced... Justice for Victims of Sanctuary City Bill. A piece of legislation. I didn't look at it yet. Um, to, uh, to hold sanctuary cities accountable. I'm not sure exactly what it does. Oh, actually, I think it does aim to create a private right of civil action for victims of sanctuary jurisdictions. Look, I'll take it if it's coming from him to pander. I mean, he never was for this before, but... Hey, I'll take it now. But here's the funny thing. There's no effort to bring it to the floor. Like, I would respect him if he got Mitch McConnell to vote on it. But it's just a press release. So, you know what? Maybe we should try to hold him to it. And say, hey, Mitch, if you're going to support the re-election and have the entire caucus and the NRSC support Tillis against the primary challenger on the basis that he's this great guy fighting sanctuary cities, well, maybe you ought to pass it and have a sustained debate and messaging for a week or two over this and shame the Democrats and run on this. Is that too much to ask? Well, from people like Mitch McConnell, it sure is. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all. Thanks for listening.